fishing hole in the Gallatin River was a place where the river branched out and went around an island and then the two channels of the river came back together and the way that they came is just almost at a right angle to each other and it just created this swirling, sucking, deep hole that was the best fish producer on the river and it took quite a hike to get there but I would make the hike every time because it was always worth being there and I was thinking about the way that those two currents of the river came together in just this twisting, swirling, writhing, wrestling match of currents and it reminds me in a sense of the text that we're going to look at this morning. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14 because what we find is that when we are drawing close to the conclusion, the climax of the story of the good news of Jesus, what we find is that there are multiple forces at work and they're at work in the same city and they're even at work within the same room. And those two forces couldn't be more opposite, black and white, uh, light and dark. And so as Mark 14 begins, Mark, in the writing of his gospel, purposefully juxtaposes these two opposites and forces us to see them both together. Let me read for us from Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. We're coming up on Easter time right now. It's an appropriate time to look at this story. It says, And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table of a home, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Our story begins with the death plot. We see that there. We understand a few things about this death plot, but it's really against that black backdrop of the death plot that then this shining, beautiful act of love sparkles like a diamond against that black backdrop. What do we know about the death plot? If you're looking at verses 1 and 2 there, you know who wants to kill Jesus, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And we note the irony that the most religious people out there are the ones who want to kill Jesus. And I think likewise today we can just note that not everyone who knows the Bible knows the Savior. And so there's this danger that we also stand guard against 
in just having religiousness. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law, though they want to kill Jesus, it tells us they're frustrated in that desire. They're facing a problem. And we want to say, well, what's the problem, guys? You're the guys in power. Why can't you just take action and do away with Jesus the way you want to do? But they can't. You see, it's a game of messy politics. What does the text tell us? It says that they're worried about something. They're worried that the people might riot. Now, to understand this just a little bit more, it's estimated that anywhere from 85,000 to 300,000 pilgrims converged on Jerusalem annually at the time of the Passover. That's three to 10 times the size of the city. Imagine just for a moment, 120,000 to 400,000 people converging on Bozeman next week. Where would we put 400,000 people in Bozeman? What would you do with them? Okay. And the crowds that are coming to Jerusalem, the crowds by and large love Jesus. He's popular. They, people have heard about him. They're talking about him. And even though people don't all believe in him, they at least hold that he's some kind of a prophet. Remember when Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say one of the other prophets. People hold Jesus in high esteem and the religious leaders know that. And they know that if, he arrest, if they arrest him at that time, they, they may face a riot. And some people, I think, don't really take seriously what a riot would mean and how serious of a possibility that would be. And maybe if you don't take it seriously, how that actually could be a realistic possibility, I would challenge somebody to read the book of Acts. You'll run across a couple of really good riots in the book of Acts. These truly were explosive times. And if you're still thinking about rioting and, and trying to get that, I was thinking about our own civilized times. And we have riots today. I have a few slides here. Uh-oh. Are they coming? What's happening, Robert? Just give me a report. Projector coming? Here we go. Oh, all right. Here we go. A couple of these famous riots from recent years. Uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson. Let's see if my clicker is going to work. There we go. Freddie Gray. Um, this was the one before that. Eric Garner. Uh, check this one out. January 20th, 2017. As protesters clash with the police, we see police throw stun grenades. This was inauguration day. People really happy about the new president. Rubber butts are flying by me right now as we are speaking. Again, he's throwing another flashback right here. Holy cow! Again, guys, we're simultaneously live on Facebook.com forward slash wearechange.org. Wearechange.org on Facebook. Again, um, we've seen this constant How would you like to be there? Here. We were injured. Those are scary times, aren't they? Um, crowds get out of control. I've never been in a crowd that was quite like that before. Maybe some of you have. Um, most of the footage I found of that had way too much language in it for our time this morning. So they're worried about a riot. It's a real possibility. It's not just that the people would get out of control. It's what would happen because of it. The Romans would come in and they would brutally put down a riot. People would die. A lot of people would die. And the Romans would hold the religious leaders who are supposed to be the ones responsible to keep this 
people under control responsible and they would lose their position and they would lose their power. And so it was a game of messy politics. They wanted to arrest Jesus and kill him, but they said not during the feast or the people may riot. But something happens in this story to move the death plot from frustration to fulfillment. Judas. Judas. Look at verse 10. It says, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. Why could one of Jesus' own disciples move the death plot from frustration to fulfillment? Precisely because he was an insider. Because he could give them the tip that they needed to take Jesus at a time when the crowds weren't going to be around, when they could do it secretly. And if you look at verse 11, it says, they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas is looking for the right moment when Jesus can be handed over to avoid the crowds. It is no coincidence that Jesus was arrested very late at night, maybe between 11 o'clock p.m. and 1 a.m. It's no coincidence that all the trials happened during that same night in the middle of the night. It's no coincidence that Jesus was hanging on the cross by 9 o'clock a.m. the next morning. By the time most of the people woke up to the new day to realize what was going on, Jesus is already on the cross. It wasn't an accident. Have you ever thought about Judas? Why did Judas betray Jesus? And lots of people have put lots of thought into that and suggested things along the lines of Judas becoming uh, disenfranchised or disillusioned with Jesus. He maybe per, uh, perhaps was one of those who, who saw a kingdom coming that would come in and trounce on the Romans and set up a political kingdom on earth. And, and maybe he's disillusioned with the kind of kingdom that he sees unfolding. And the things that he hears Jesus saying about his own coming death and those things, we don't know. It, it never gives us the inside scoop into Judas's heart. Ultimately, when you boil it down, I think you come up with two reasons that Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus. One is that ultimately he was destined to. However you sort that out, that's scriptural. And the second thing that you come to is that ultimately he wanted to. Somehow. Judas came to a point in his heart where the thing that he most wanted to do was to betray Jesus to the death plot. And I, I guess I think about that and I just want to stop and realize that exposure to Jesus does not guarantee salvation. Judas was as close as a person could get. And you sometimes hear people saying things like, well, you know, if God would just speak to me, like he spoke to the disciples on, you know, the transfiguration, you know, then I would believe. Or if God would just perform a miracle for me and heal this or do that, you know, then I would believe in him. And yet we're reminded that exposure to Jesus doesn't necessarily result in salvation. Judas saw with his own eyes. He saw the miracles that Jesus performed. He watched Jesus calm the storm with a word. Judas saw him heal people. Judas saw him cast out demons. Judas heard with his own ears. He heard the teaching straight from the lips of Jesus. The crowd said, this is amazing. He teaches with authority, not in any way like this. 
Judas heard Jesus speaking about the kingdom of God, the parables, all the teaching, the private teaching with the disciples. He heard all of that. He had that exposure to Jesus. Judas touched with his own hands. He was there. He lived with Jesus. He saw how Jesus operated on a day in and day out basis. He knew the consistency of Jesus' life. He saw Jesus tired. He saw Jesus lonely. He saw Jesus grieved. And in all of that, he was right there seeing it. Exposure to Jesus does not guarantee salvation. And he had everybody fooled. Even on the night that Judas went to betray Jesus, nobody suspected Judas. They all thought he was going out on some errand or something like that. Nobody said, oh, there's Judas. He's probably going to betray us. Look out, everybody. Nobody said that. Nobody thought it was Judas. They said, is it I? So I just, I'm going to pause for a second and just ask you a bold question. And here you're all sitting at Bible college. But I'll ask you the bold question. Do you have everybody fooled? And maybe you know it in your heart. If you do, I want to invite you today to walk out of that darkness right into the light and say, wow, yeah, I've been walking a lie, but I'm no longer. And I want to challenge all of you not to assume that people in the ministries and the places where you serve, just because they have exposure to Jesus, necessarily know him. Not everybody who knows the Bible knows the Savior. So don't be afraid to speak the gospel. But against that black backdrop of the death plot against Jesus, now Mark shows us something beautiful, something wonderful. He doesn't name the woman, nor does Matthew in his account, but John also records this story, and John names the woman as Mary. This is the same Mary, he explicitly tells us, who is the sister of Martha and and Lazarus. So, Jesus has just raised Mary's brother from the dead. This is a woman whose life has been radically impacted and transformed by Jesus. And look at verse 3 to see what she does. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard, She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Strangely enough, this is not the only time that this happened to Jesus. If you're reading in Luke's gospel in chapter 7, you'll find that at the home of a Pharisee, a woman came and also poured very expensive perfume on Jesus. Um, She brought an alabaster jar of perfume, it tells us. Here's just an artist's portrayal of the event. And um, she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wet his feet with her tears, and then wiped them with her hair, kissing his feet and pouring perfume on Jesus. Now, let me just stop here for a second and ask you this. Um, How many of you young women would ever think to do this to anybody? How many of you would say, wow, that teacher has just had such a great impact in my life. I think I'm going to go pour perfume on all over him. If you started to do that to me, I would probably run. (laughs) This is not our culture, but it was theirs. More than one woman thought to do the same thing to Jesus, and nobody was actually weirded out by the actual act in and of itself. At the home of the Pharisee, the Pharisee wasn't going, whoa, what's that woman doing? 
No, his problem was who she was. This was a sinful woman. And Jesus knew that and was letting her touch him. But the pouring of perfume didn't weird them out. And likewise, in this story here, it's not the pouring of perfume that bothers people. It's something else that's troubling the people around. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. You see, nobody was shocked by perfume in and of itself. Um, you can remember this is the days before deodorant was invented. In those days, they fought smell with smell. Okay, perfume is a common import and export item. Why? Simply because it's in demand, because people want it. People trade it. This is, there's nothing weird about perfume, and nobody was shocked either by the container, the alabaster jar. The alabaster jar is simply the common container of the day. Nobody's shocked at the pouring of the perfume on Jesus. Um, you might go like weird oil stuff. I, I don't get that, but look at Matthew. Uh, Jesus' words, he says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, take care of your personal appearance the way you normally would so you don't look different on that day. You're fasting, just do the normal thing so you look normal. This was normal. The pouring of perfume, the oil on the head, and of course, People still do this today. I, I was like, really? I had to learn a little bit about the women's cosmetics deal in researching that. Um, here's an alabaster jar. It's simply a, a white kind of translucent gypsum that's soft enough to be carved out. It was a normal container of the day. Nobody thought anything weird about alabaster. So maybe it's the kind of perfume. Nar uh, Mark identifies it as pure nard. And now we're getting somewhere. Pure nard was very expensive as it's identified here. It's rare because um, it was imported from India. It was made of a nard plant and the oil from that. And so it was a, a very, very fragrant perfume. And because it was so rare, it was so expensive, they identify it here as worth more than a year's wages. Has, have any of you ever held a bottle of perfume worth like 50 grand? Me neither. Um, but you get the idea. This is a, a gift. This is a perfume befitting royalty, right? You're not going to take perfume that's worth 50 grand, a, a bottle of it, and just use it to go play basketball in the gym, Okay, this is special. This is rare. It's expensive. It wasn't the run-of-your-mill perfume. It was nard. And, and here's where it gets shocking, though. Mark says that she did what with it? She broke the jar. Probably broke the neck right off of that alabaster jar so that she could pour it on Jesus. Why did she break it? Because she's going to use it all. She's not going to save any of it for later. She's going to pour it all out. She's going to give it all to him. I want to talk with you for a couple minutes about extravagance. 
because there's something in this woman's actions that is so extremely extravagant. Labor Day 2002, I took a girl named Andrea for a hike. It was the day I proposed to her. This is the mountain peak where I proposed to Andrea. And uh, it was a peak that I was familiar with through hunting. There's no game, uh, no trail up there, just game trails. And um, I packed a special lunch that day and we drove up there and we ate lunch and then we took off on the hike. And I had my backpack on and in my backpack I had all the things to make this day special, extravagant. I want to show her how much she means to me. Here's the view from the top. You can see Lone Mountain way down there in the background. Gallatin Canyon down below. It's an incredible view from up there. But in my backpack, I had packed all these materials for this day to make it special. I packed um, charcoal barbecue briquettes all the way up there because it's up above tree line. And I wanted to cook her a hot meal. And I had all the fixings in there for a really special hot meal. And there was sparkling cider that I packed all the way up there. And I, I literally snuck out two of my great-grandmother's fine china plates from my mother's cupboard, packed them carefully in towels, and took them all the way up there. We're eating nice, okay, on this. I had the ring with me in this little heart-shaped box that I hand-carved out of bird's-eye maple, and I lined it with black velvet. The ring with the diamond in it is the most expensive gift to this day that I've ever bought for another person in my life, okay? All of that, it's extravagant. Why? You know, why not just start a campfire and roast weenies? <laughs> it's, it's because you want it to be special, extravagant. I'm showing her how much she means to me. I want her to know that she's more precious to me than that diamond ring, that she means more to me, that she's more valuable to me than that, that I treasure her. It's extravagant, yes, but it's extravagance that's well worth it. And God topped off the whole evening with this incredible sunset that we had up there as I proposed to her. And we took those pictures and then floated off the mountain all the way down in our wonderful joy. But it was extravagant. And I want you to get the picture of extravagance as we talk about this. Because you need to see that it's, it's the extravagance of Mary's action that is what was so incredible about what she did. And it's what everybody was so bothered by. I want you to contrast Mary and Judas for just a moment. And Mark forces us to do this right in the text, putting them together. Judas came to a place in his heart where the thing that he most wanted to do was to betray Jesus to a death plot. But Mary came to a place in her heart where the thing that she most wanted to do was break the neck off that jar and pour it all out on Jesus. The most expensive thing that she could do the most extravagant act of costly, sacrificial love for him. What was Jesus worth to her? Was Jesus special to her? And I just wonder about my own heart, and I wonder about your heart. <laughs> like, where are we at with that? Is Jesus treasured? 
to us. Mary's action was not understood or appreciated. Those present responded with indignation, it tells us. They said, why this waste? It looked to them, that all they could see was a purely practical, pragmatic perspective. We could have sold this perfume and we could have given the money to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly, it says. I, I'm wondering if you've ever been rebuked for doing something good. I remember one time when I was in high school that I came to church on a Sunday morning and this man that I knew a little bit came up to me and he was a pretty new believer. And um, he said to me, he says, Ryan, um, I'm wondering if you could do something for me. My son is here visiting right now from California and he doesn't know Jesus. He's about your age. His name is Landon. I'm wondering, would you be willing just to sit with him and say hello to him and stuff like that? I said, sure, that's fine. I can do that. So a couple minutes later, in walks Landon. And Landon came in and he's, he's dressed and he's pierced and he's tattooed in the way that it just is like that external declaration, like I'm a hurting person. I'm an angry, hurting person, okay? And he walks in and all his clothing, everything. But I said, hello, and I'm Ryan and whatever. And I invited him to come sit down with me and he did. And we went up and we sat down over on the side of the church and we began to talk. And just a minute after we did, this man comes striding up to us. And do you know how people walk when there's like purpose? It's not like la la la, but I mean, it's like they are coming with a purpose. Okay, this man walks up to us like that. And he just stuck his finger right in Landon's face like this. And he got down there and he goes, that hat is evil. Sorry. He says, you should burn it. <laughs> and he says, he literally said this, your hat is evil, you should burn it. And then he stuffed his finger in my face and he said, and you're evil for keeping company with him. And then he just turned on his heel and walked away. Welcome to church, Landon. Both of us just kind of sat there like, what just happened? And I looked over at this hard kid and tears were just starting to come down his face. And he just stood up because he was just going to leave. And I, I grabbed onto his arm, literally grabbed onto his arm and pulled him back down. I'm just desperately trying to explain to him. I'm like, I don't know what is wrong with that guy. I don't know what his problem is. People here are not like that. I, I'm so sorry. I don't know what's going on. And yet here I am at the same time stinging from a rebuke I didn't deserve either. And my dad, who was the pastor, got a nasty phone call from that guy later after the worship service. I imagine Mary felt something similar. She acted out of love. She acted out of worship and yet she's rebuked harshly. Maybe somebody yelled, stop, stop, what are you doing? Don't pour it all out, why are you wasting that? What's your problem? Whoa, I thought I was doing something beautiful. And Jesus came to her defense. Notice that he does not dispute the costliness of the action, the perfume. He defends her nonetheless. Jesus is the last person on earth you could accuse about not caring for the poor. 
And yet he says, the poor you'll always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, but you're not always going to have me. And then he says, she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. And then that beautiful statement, I tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached all over the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And it has been. We're still talking about it right now. Brothers and sisters, it's a good thing to be extravagant for Jesus. We're coached all our lives in spending our money wisely and doing all those kinds of things, but I don't want you to be stingy when it comes to Jesus. Jesus defended a costly, sacrificial, worshipful, beautiful act of love done to him and of course, in God's sovereign way, that act had so much more meaning than Mary ever realized when she did it. I wonder what kept the disciples from appreciating that act of worship. Why hadn't they thought of it and done it themselves? Why hadn't they planned for a special night? Hey guys, Passover's coming. Let's do something amazing for Jesus. Think of all the ways he's poured into our lives. Think of all that he's done. Let's do something to honor him, to worship him. Why hadn't they done it? Obviously, one of them, Judas, didn't do it because he didn't believe. But I think about the other guys, and I think that sometimes they're like me. I'm like them. So familiar that we lose our sense of wonder. Time is running out. I'd love to tell you two stories right now. I'm going to just shave it down to one quick one, and it'll be about wrapped up. Um, last spring, I had the opportunity of hosting uh, 18 different youth leaders from 18 different states all around the country here in Bozeman for a retreat. And we went around to different places, but they're all over the country. And they just kept ooing and aahing at all the wonderful scenery in Montana in the month of May, which is green and beautiful. And we took them one day on a hike up to Lava Lake. Uh, that was the other story. You'll not get my Alaska one. Um, here's Lava Lake. We hiked up there. And now Lava Lake is, it's pretty. But as a Montana guy who spent a lot of time in the backcountry and all that, I'm going, eh, it's okay. But I can name a bunch of way more spectacular places than Lava Lake. However, as I hiked up there with this group of people, we crest that little hill and the lake first comes into view and I stood there and, and people start walking up. I literally heard at least three different people say as they gasped, this is the most beautiful thing I have ever seen in my life. Now, Montana boy me, I wanted to laugh because I'm like, you think that's beautiful? You ain't seen nothing yet. Why my scorn? <laughs> What's wrong with me? Why do I not appreciate the beauty as they did? Because they're not from here. And they looked at that and just went, wow. And here I am. Yeah, ho-hum, whatever. Have you ever been in a worship service? Because this is confession time for me. I have. And looked around 
at other people and I see somebody with tears streaming down their face in a time of corporate worship and I realize as I'm almost stifling a yawn that I'm sitting there totally unaffected and unmoved by the person of Jesus. It can happen because of just that familiarity. Now, what's the solution to all that? What's the solution for the Montana guy who doesn't appreciate the beauty? It's not to move to an ugly place. The solution is for me to recapture that sense of wonder. It's for me to stop and look around and see it. In our relationship with Jesus, the solution to that is to stop and dive deep back into the person of who he is and and recapture our wonder to remember who he is and what he's done and to see the beauty again. Some of you are coming off a of spring break right now and you're feeling tired. You're midway through the semester and you're, you would be in danger of stifling that yawn at the next time of corporate worship because you forgot a little bit. And guess what? It happens to all of us. So my encouragement for you, my challenge to you is to dive back into Jesus and remember who he is. But more than that, I want you to consider your own love for him and how you express that. This is the uh, five love languages. Dr. Gary Chapman made this famous in studying and researching this. Believes it's universal to people. I'm not debating any of that right now, but at least think about it for a moment. Words, could you use words of affirmation, words of love for Christ? Do you? I mean, just think about your prayers for a minute. Just, do you ever tell him you love him? And how much he means to you? Maybe it just affects your prayers a little bit. Or maybe you write a song or a poem. Somebody wrote the the song. um, He's more wonderful than my mind can conceive. He's more wonderful than my heart can believe. He goes beyond my highest hopes and fondest dreams. He's everything that my mind ever longed for, everything that he's promised, and so much more. He's more than amazing, more than marvelous, more than miraculous could ever be. He's more than wonderful. That's what Jesus means to me. What a beautiful song. Somebody wrote that for Jesus. How about you? Maybe you need to get out a pad and paper and put your heart out there for him. How about gifts? Maybe you need to break your bank account open the way that Mary broke open that jar of nard sometime. And just in a different way, an extravagant way, a way that's above and beyond any normal tithing and all that you do, show him you love him. Maybe it's touch. Oh, yeah. Why don't you save that one until you see him face to face? It's coming, okay? But how about acts of service? You know, my wife knows the difference whether I do the dishes joyfully or grudgingly. Jesus knows the difference too. When I go to clean the church building at Manhattan Bible Church, do I do it with a grudging heart or do I do it with a worshipful heart? Because I get to serve in a small way, even in an unnoticed way that only he sees. Maybe it's time for you to think of an act of service that you'll do. Maybe it's just time spent. Time spent with another person. Maybe you just need to take your Bible and get away 
on your own. Go spend a few hours with Jesus. Have a date, just you and him. Go spend some time there. I'm just encouraging all of you right now to consider something that you may do that is an act of extravagant love for him. Maybe in the next week or two, something that you will do that says, this is above and beyond. And Jesus, I'm just doing this because I love you. I want to encourage you to keep recapturing that all through your life to love him well. Okay, we're going to end right there. Let me pray for you. Father, um, sometimes in our sinfulness and our frailty, our eyes just seem to get clouded over and our hearts seem to get a little bit callous. And Lord, you know that about us. And yet your spirit is alive and at work within us to call us away from that back to a place where we love purely from a heart that is captured and motivated by your person and who you are. Lord Jesus, we would just seek to love you today and on into the future in just a way that appreciates truly who you are that it would flow out of us in an extravagant way. And we know that you don't expect extravagance every day. We can't spend a year's worth of wages every single day. It just can't happen in our lives in a practical way. And that's okay. That's not your expectation. We show faithful love every day through obedience and our disciplines and things that we do. But would you help us, even motivate us, as we would see you in a fresh way to, to pour out our hearts to you in extravagant love. We pray in Jesus' name again. Amen.